folks, again, a very warm welcome to the latest edition of our Generation Podcast. We hope that you are enjoying the podcast. Please give us feedback, anyone you'd like us to talk to, or anything that we've spoken about that triggers something off in your mind or maybe you'd like to engage with or talk about a little bit more. So the podcast is mostly, not exclusively, about mission, seen through the lens of a kind of Scottish perspective. Again, not exclusively, but largely because we're based here, Generation, the mission arm of the Free Church of Scotland, based here at Edinburgh in Scotland, but of course with an eye out to the entire global context. My guest today is no stranger to the global context. She's Sandra MacDonald. Sandra spent 23 years in Thailand, where she was a missionary with OMF. Sandra, a very warm welcome to Generation Podcast. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us uh, a little bit just about yourself? Many of the listeners wouldn't know who you are. A lot of listeners will know. So just sketch in a wee bit about maybe your childhood. Where's that lovely accent from? Uh, well, my childhood was in the north of Scotland, and that's where I've come back to now. So it was a happy childhood, and I was brought up in a Christian family. Uh, both my parents were Christians and uh, I have one sister and she became a Christian at a fairly early age. So I was always in the context of church and Sunday school and, yeah, very happy time of my life. Okay, and did you ever think as you were growing up about being a missionary? Yes, it's interesting and I know others have said similar, but it's something I always wanted to be even before I was a Christian. And when you get the normal thing in in primary school of the teacher going round the class and asking people what they would like to be when they grew up, and you'll get the usual doctors, nurses, hairdressers, firemen, policemen, whatever. And I always said a missionary. And at that point, I wasn't even a Christian. But I think in the situation I was in here, we were so used to having missionary speakers come and so on in this context that it was something that was always in my mind. Right. You see, you were brought up in a Christian home, good, you know, uh, ordinary background, I suppose. So when did you actually become a Christian by means of your own personal conviction? I, I would look back to, I was about the age of 15, 16, probably. Um, my father died when I was 14. And that was kind of, uh, obviously, a very difficult uh, time in the life of the family. And although in some ways I, I prayed a prayer before that as a child, uh, wanting to ask Jesus into my life, but it never really... <laughs> Well, won't say it never really worked. <laughs> it never really seemed to happen. Uh, but after my father's death, and you have to think a bit more about things, uh, then that really was a point where eventually uh, at the what was then called the Strathpeffer Convention, uh, I just made that com- real and true commitment for myself, just sitting in the pew by myself as, as the preacher was preaching. And uh, so that's where I would point to my conversion having taken place, although there had been, you know, many conversions and in inverted commas uh, with uh, as a child praying 
uh, then. I, I think too that um, we we were in a very privileged position here because we didn't seem to have the kind of denominational barriers that there are sometimes. All the churches did things together, and uh, I can distinctly remember that we would be at the the Free Church Sunday School, uh, which would be at eleven. The church service would start at twelve. And then on mass, all of the children would walk from the Free Church Sunday School up to the local gospel hall, Sunday School, and go to Sunday School there while our parents were in church. So we kind of didn't have the uh, problem of, of mixing together. And I think that was a real privilege. The other great thing that would happen would be on a Sunday night once a month, there would be an after church rally. And that would be in the local gospel hall. And again, the churches would all come together for that rally and different people would cheer. I can remember Mr. Leach, who was the minister in the Free Church at that point, often cheering that after church rally. So it was it was a lovely kind of getting together and mixing, which uh, I think was very positive in the, in the lives of, of the young people of that time. Mm-hmm. Were you a serious child? Uh, not particularly. I think uh, probably if you asked any of the family, they would say I was a bit of a brat. <laughs> so up to anything that was uh, going to be tried or wanting to do, I would I would be there. I'd be in the middle of it, I can tell you. Did the death of your father have an impact of making it a little bit more serious or was it a kind of usual bereavement process that perhaps initially, but you kind of um, accepted the way things were? Um, I think I think I had to take on more responsibility. Um, my sister by that time was away in um, Aberdeen uh, t- in teacher training, and so I was still at home. And I think I had to take on some more responsibilities then, uh, and that obviously make, makes you grow up a bit quicker. And although at the age of 14, I probably thought I was grown up uh, in retrospect and looking back, I really wasn't. So, yes, that probably turned me into being a bit more serious. Yeah. I mean, Dingmos for Peffer area, I think in those days, as you rightly say, was known to be a place where churches got together. The Strath Convention was always something really quite special. I, I don't know. I don't think it's just nostalgia, but there does seem to be something missing these days. I, I don't know. Do you feel the same? Can you put your finger on it? I don't know if I can put my finger on it, but I would I would agree with you. I, I think I think for us in, in those days, we, we had sort of two highlights in our year, and one was that Strathpeffer Convention, and the second one was the OMF conference in Brora. Yep, yep. Where really we would we would fill a train. There'd be a trainload of young people traveling from Inverness, picking up people along the way uh, up to Brora. And yeah, the, these were really two very much spiritual highlights in, in our lives. And sometimes I think of, of the young folk today and, and I think, well, they don't sort of have that maybe in the same way. Everything's so accessible uh, nowadays in in online and the way folks get together and so on. I, I mean, pre-COVID, I, I don't mean because of COVID, but everything's just different. And that whole perspective is is not really there in the same way. So from a personal point of view, I would say yes. There's there is a 
a sort of missing out there. Yeah, I mean, I had a congregational meeting last night in another church. There was about 150 people there. We had to vote in something. The voting was incredibly efficient with, with the poll and everything. So it was efficient. There's no doubt about that. But we all just missed the social contact. And, you know, a lot of things about Strath and Broda are conversations in the car going there, you know, engagements with people. And uh, I guess you just don't get that over the internet. No, I, I agree. And, and I think that in these places, there was a real expectation that God was going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can distinctly remember, actually, um, one girl in, in, at the Broda Conference coming to faith. But I can remember, it was David Partridge, actually, who was, who was the minister then. And I can remember him saying he had, he had prepared the sermon, particularly with her in mind. And as young people, we were kind of sitting there waiting for it to happen. And, and it did. <laughs> so I, I think we, we kind of had an expectation of that God would work. We, we didn't kind of imagine, didn't even think that he wouldn't probably. And, and it's true, many can point to that time in their lives as say, a turning point, maybe a meeting with Jesus, however you would describe it. It was a it was a special it was a special time. Yeah, I mean, God does seem to work through various seasons. I I was only at one broader conference, and uh, Charles Abel was the minister in the Church of Scotland then. Mm-hmm. I remember his name? Archie Boyd was in the Free Church. Ronald Mackay had just started ministry in Galsby, and just Sunday night there, uh, there was preaching. There was an electricity in in the room. You just can't define it. It was just the presence of, of God. And I don't think it was it's nostalgia. I don't think my memory is playing tricks, but there was an unusual anointing. Okay, just moving on really quickly. Um, childhood, you're self-confessed brat, and I'm sure that's not true. You left school. What did you do? And tell us how you were called to um, cross-cultural mission? Well, I think because, as I've said, I always wanted to um, be a missionary. When I became a Christian, I, I, I wanted to pursue that, but I kind of felt at that point, I wasn't sure that it would would work out. I was thinking mainly of, of my mother, and that would mean, obviously, going away from home and so on. So I, I kind of shelved things for a little while. Uh, but the, the 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 call was always there, and again, I think it was at a, a Strathpeffer convention that I finally said to the Lord, "Okay, you know, I'm 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 willing to go." So I I from there on I kind of pursued that that line, and I went to all nations uh, for training. But prior to all nations, I actually did a year in Belgium, Italy, and Belgium with OM. And that was really kind of to just test how things would work out uh, at home and so on during during my time away. When when I realised it could carry on as it were, I, and I went to uh, all nations and I had I asked OMF. I looked at other societies too, though. But I mean, I did. I asked OMF for the papers so that I could fill them in, and I had them, and I had them all ready. And I remember thinking, mm, is it right? Is it right to send these off? What shall I do? And that very day when they needed to go, uh, my sister phoned and my sister phoned and she said that 
she and her husband were going to be moving back to live in Dingwall. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's God's confirmation. You know, some, some would, somebody will be around, as it were, if my mother does need any help or anything. And so that was kind of the catalyst that thought, right, what, what, are, you, what are you holding back for? And so I, I, I sent away the papers and, yeah, that's how it worked out. Great. So that was your general call on commission. What about specifically to Thailand? Well, originally I'd actually been interested in Laos. Uh, we had a missionary called Doris Whitelock uh, who used to come and do meetings here. And she had been a missionary in Laos. And I suppose hearing all about the country and so on, it, it very much attracted me. But in 1975, Laos closed and it wasn't possible to send uh, anyone there. So it was actually OMF that asked me to consider Thailand. Now, I was, I was very fearful about learning Thai. I had done French in school and I was pretty rubbish at it, to be honest. And I thought, if I can't even learn French, how on earth would I learn a difficult tonal language like Thai? And this, this is quite a, a, a wonderful story in many ways, because we had to do deputation before we went out to really get churches to know about us and so on. And I was actually doing this deputation with Rory McKenzie and uh, Rory and Roz, his wife, we all went out to Thailand actually at the same time. But he and I were doing deputation with one of the uh, British leaders of, of OMF and we were in a church in Inverness and the OMF leader was the one who, who brought the message uh, night by night and we, we gave testimony and talked about God's leading. And I can remember him in the middle of his sermon, he stopped and he said to the congregation, excuse me, but I have to give a message to Rory and Sandra. And so he, he read the passage in Exodus where God says to Moses, who, who has made your tongue? Who enables you to talk? And, and that was a real promise as regards the Thai language. We both, we both took it like that. And I can remember in the years of language study, well, the, the main year of language study in Bangkok, we would remind each other of that promise that God has given when we were slogging away trying to learn uh, Thai. So it was, it was a wonderful confirmation from God about it being the place we, that uh, I was called to. Yeah. How important is it for a cross-cultural missionary to learn the local language? I would absolutely say it's crucial. I think learning the language and the culture are absolutely crucial. In one area, it lets the people see that you're, you're really serious about being there. And they're, the Thai are very forgiving because even in big mistakes that you might make, they just are so pleased that you as a foreigner are trying to learn their language. And so they, they kind of laugh with you <laughs> and they accept, accept that you're really trying. And I think it opens doors that would not normally open. If you, if you can't communicate with people in their language, then it is very difficult to really get down talking to the nitty-gritty, as it were. And if you don't have an understanding of their culture, then you're just going to put your foot in it so many times. And I think it's, it's personally crucial that you, you really learn the language and the culture. 
It must be so funny if you go into a Thai restaurant in Glasgow or Edinburgh and start speaking. What's, what's the reaction? Because, I mean, this is audio, folk can't see you, but you don't look Thai. <laughs> no, I certainly don't look Thai. Uh, yeah, it, it is very funny, actually. And sometimes I won't say anything to begin with. And it's only as uh, things progress a little bit, I'll start speaking in Thai. And yeah, the whole attitude changes. And um, yeah, we get some extra treats thrown in usually and things like that because we, we actually speak the language and probably ask for things that they don't actually serve and they will make an effort to produce what if they can, what you've asked for. So it's usually quite an exciting experience going to going to these places, yeah. So you're 23 years in Thailand. What was your specific role? Well, I was initially involved in, in church planting, but I actually ended up doing quite a few things because OMF at one point asked me if I would go down to the office in Bangkok and be the business manager so I did that for a term. Uh, I went back to church planting and then they asked me if I would help to head up the work of Dunok uh, Banasan, which is, was the OMF publishers in those days. So I did that. So I kind of was moved around a little bit, just depending on what the need was that OMF had at the time. Was there any particular job that you liked more than others? No, um, I think I liked them all. <laughs> I think I liked them all because I, I, at each point, the Lord really seemed to lead. And I know he leads through uh, your leaders asking you to do something and so on. But sometimes it was quite specific. And probably in the church planting context, you probably have um, more opportunity of the witnessing side of things and of discipleship and so on. And that didn't happen so much in the office because although I was working alongside a Thai staff of five, uh, you didn't have the same opportunity of witness and so on um, to, to Thai, Thai people in general. So that that was, uh, but that I enjoyed it. I was also responsible for seeing that missionaries got their visas, their work permits, all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot that was necessary in order for people to be, if you want to call it, the front line. And and I enjoyed it. I I loved working with Thai. They were just great, and they were so good at their jobs and and so good at uh, helping me who was in there as the manager and yet they'd been there for years and you knew the job like the back of their hands so it was yeah it was it was it was a great experience yeah I mean you lived abroad for over 23 years that must have given you a great you know perspective of the church in Scotland did it and if so what was that perspective yeah I think I think that um, at times I kind of thought, where is the church in Scotland coming from on some things? And um, at other times, if you didn't hear much from back home, because th this was not in the days of instant contact. Yeah. You know, this was the day of... Um, this was the days of asking at the general post, post office if you could have an international phone call that might last, you know, five minutes maximum. We we didn't have phones in our in our homes or anything uh, way back then. 
So we didn't have instant contact. When I moved to the publishers, that was when I, I learned to use email. It was just coming in. So we we so if people didn't write letters, you kind of were in a bit isolated uh, from the situation at home until until you came back home and did the reverse culture shock sort of thing. So um, in some ways, I didn't know too much. And in other ways, because people would send me magazines and, and so on, I could pick up things. And, and I can remember at one point thinking how insular we were here in Scotland because there was teaching in, in the church magazine that I received, not, not a local church magazine, but in the church magazine that I received, they were doing some teaching through Corinthians and they had come to to First Corinthians eight and the teaching on sacrificing food to idols, and the comment, the comment was, "Well, we'll just pass that bit by because that doesn't really apply." And I can remember sitting in Thailand thinking, "Doesn't it apply? Of course it applies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly applied to my context because that happened all the time." And I thought, "Well, and as more." Uh, Easterners come into the country as there's more cross-cultural stuff happening in Scotland, more people from other nations settling there, that if everything applies, we've got to have a wider perspective than we had. That was what I thought at that point. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because it was Diwali last week and uh, there was a you know, a, a debate somewhere in the blogosphere. I mean, do you wish people a happy Diwali? You know, do you wish people a happy Eid? Um, what would you do? Um, well, the Thai, the Thai New Year uh, is in April. And I, I I would have known that's when they throw all the water. You've probably heard about all the water throwing. I mean, I have no problem there to say, have a happy New Year. Mm. And, you know, but you would often say, you know, God's blessing on you, and, and they would accept that. Yes. Not that they were aware of the God that I was referring to at times, but they, they would just accept that. I, I think that sometimes we can maybe get a bit tied up in should we or shouldn't we, and um, it's maybe a bit more straightforward. I think an exciting development here in the UK right now is that the, the tie that are in the UK Every second Saturday night, we have teaching by Thai, mostly, uh, on on some of these very issues. What can you do and what ceremonies can you do and what can you not do and so on. And and it's very interesting listening from a Thai perspective, who are mature Christians, what they think and so on. And there's a lot to learn in the way that they would guide us through some of these questions and issues, and this would be the same, whatever nationality you're relating to. Yeah, I mean, that takes me on to my next subject. The world is changing so much. And, you know, contemporary missions got so many trends now. There's globalisation, there's moving away against, you know, paternalism, the colonial model, and all these things are absolutely right. But a big feature is diaspora ministry, uh, as the world just spreads out. Can you tell us a little bit about diaspora ministry amongst the Thai people in Scotland? Yeah, well, it, it's great, actually, because um, when I when I came home at one point after this 23 years, intending to go back, and uh, the Highland Theological College approached me, actually, and asked if I would could be seconded to them. 
And that happened. OMF were wanting to place people in Bible colleges, so that happened. But at the end of that time, uh, because I knew my mother needed more help and so on, then I wanted to stay here. And OMF asked me to be involved in diaspora. So from then on until, until I retired, um, and I'm still doing it, but anyway, until I retired, that's what I was involved in. And I think it just gives a fantastic opportunity for us to be involved with, well, in my case, with Thai people here at home. I mean, there's questions to ask because when I went to Thailand, I expected to learn the language, to learn the culture, to adapt to Thai as much as I possibly could. And I've had to kind of look at things and I think, well, what are my expectations of Thai or other nationalities that live here now in Scotland? Am I expecting them to completely adapt to Scotland or am I expecting them to retain their own ways of, of doing things and so on? So it, it's exciting to, to have to work out some of, of these things. And that then leads on to the question of how much are churches going to be willing to adapt? And one of, one of, the, one of the main things that I had to sort out in Thailand was when, when I was teaching uh, uh, scripture, was am I, am I teaching scripture or am I teaching culture mm-hmm. from my own cultural background and perspective? And I think that this is something that churches now, with so many different nationalities living here, I think this is something that churches need to ask and need to work out. Are, are we really willing to adapt enough to make other nationalities feel comfortable here or have we got to stick to the way we've always done it and sometimes we've maybe got to do a little bit of checking are we really scriptural or are we following culture more yeah i think it's good for churches even to appreciate and to note the possibility that there's other faith faith groups present and acknowledge that. Um, They may be diverse. I mean, there's one church I know that's got a big Roma community goes to it, but it's also got a Muslim community. Now, culturally, you know, it's as far as east is from the west, Roma is from Muslims in terms of dress code, in terms of just outlook and life. And so, but you've just got to acknowledge both these groups in 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 your church. Yeah, and and, and work out how how the teaching is going to take place. And when when they hear say scripture read, they're reading it and hearing it through the eyes of their background. And mm-hmm. what are they actually hearing? I mean, this this is true anyway. Uh, people read things through their own cultural background and so on. But we we need an understanding. I mean, there's quite a lot of emphasis if you have a Muslim neighbour or a Buddhist neighbour or whatever that you you relate to them. But then are we making the effort to learn what Muslims actually believe or what Buddhists actually believe or whatever Sikhs believe or whatever it may be? Are, Are we taking time to know what they believe so that we can befriend them in, in, in an appropriate way. Yeah, and not treating them as the enemy, but treating them respectfully, people made in the image of God and engaging with them. I mean, I got my haircut a couple of weeks ago by a, a Muslim barber, and he said, halfway through, he said to the next customer, excuse me, when I finish this gentleman, I will be away for five minutes, I go to pray. And uh, 
you know, it was amazing to hear that. It just he's so open about his faith. And what a great way of opening up an opportunity for you. Absolutely, and it was not missed, and we had a great conversation. And he said that he finds so few folk who are prepared to talk about faith and, and religion, and yet the world is becoming not less religious, but more religious. You know, you get your Uber driver, and he, you know, he wants to talk about spirituality. Yeah, and, and, and I think this is the great thing. I, I find that with an Asian, for instance, you can bring up religion within the first few minutes of being with them. It's no issue because they are are publicly uh, bowing down to the images or whatever it is they're doing. And it's just so easy to bring it up. Whereas with other Westerners, we're, we're much more individualistic and, and probably private in some ways. And religion is not really a subject that is uh, easy to get into. Yeah. Let's talk about Buddhism because it's one of the faith groups that a lot of folk don't really know a lot about. And first of all, is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? Well, they would claim it's a religion. Many people would label it as a philosophy, but they would claim it's a religion. Okay. Now, you've lived amongst Buddhism, and I guess like Islam uh, and Christianity, you know, it's as broad from kind of liberal to fundamentalist. Buddhism is perceived as being a very nice kind of philosophy. You've got the, you know, the saffron-coloured monks and, you know, chants and meditation. Is it? Well, in my experience in Thailand, um, I have never come up against the militant side of Buddhism, but I know that there are places in the world where it can be, at times, quite militant. But that has not been any experience that I've seen, I've personally seen in Thailand. Everybody has been, you know, very friendly and um, they're sort of all-encompassing. And this is the thing about Buddhism, you can add any religion into it. It's only when you talk about the exclusive claims of Christ that you will come up against um, maybe more difficulty. But if, if, if Buddhism is all-encompassing and so you can add bits of this, that and the other into it, and, and that's absolutely fine in, in their thinking. And often it's when, even, even when somebody comes to the point of baptism in Buddhism, often the, the family members or other people in the community will say to them, how long are you going into Christianity for? Because they are used to monks maybe becoming a monk for a week or maybe for two weeks or maybe for the time of the Buddhist Lent or whatever length of time it may be. And so you go and you become a monk and then after the set, time then then you go back into your ordinary life and this is often their thinking when somebody says I'm going to become a Christian I'm going into uh, I'm going to become a Christian I'm going to be baptized then they want to know how long you're going to do it for and I think that it's more and more when the person actually comes to the point of baptism that the reality hits that this is real and it's not something that they're going to do for five minutes and then be out of it. So I guess that Buddhism can appeal to a Western consumerist uh, mentality if you're just in and out of these things. Well, yes, and, and I think because you kind of make your own path of salvation, that that is something that is very attractive 
to Westerners because that means, well, I can choose my own pathway and I can add what I want to of each thing, as it were, and I'm making my own way in life that's eventually going to lead me to nirvana or to heaven, whatever you want to, whatever terminology you want to use. So I think that they're, yeah, they're quite happy to add things and make it, well, I did it my way kind of thing. And and that is the part of the philosophy of, of Buddhism. What do you find is the best evangelistic strategy um, in Thailand, talking to Thai Buddhists? Befriending words, them. How, how, do you start, how would you start off a conversation? What would be the main leads in? Well, it depends what... Each situation is different, obviously, and it depends what their situation is at that point. But I can remember one uh, Thai lady saying... What attracted her was when she saw the love between Christians and this was something that attracted her to it and this was something that made her think, what, what is this all about? So that is, is one, one area when you're, when you're with them and when you're befriending them and so on and if you're genuine in it, they, they, they watch you for a while. When, when I was in Thailand, in one place where I lived, I, I wanted to find a way of relating to the market people, as it were. And there's very little that doesn't start with a Buddhist ceremony. And so I discovered that they did an aerobics group at five in the morning and there was no ceremony attached to that. So I started going along to that aerobics group to get to know the market people. And I can remember one lady coming up to me and saying, you know every Thai word in the Thai language. And I mean, it would have been quite nice to have said, yeah, I do, it's great, which would have not been true. So I said to her, well, actually, no, I, I, I don't know all the Thai words and I, I, don't, I don't understand everything. And from then on, it was strange. She trusted me and she started telling me about her family situation and so on. She was... Thai Buddhist, she was married to a, a Thai Muslim and she started telling me about her whole family situation and from that eventually that family came to faith mm, Fascinating Now one of the things I've read about the Thai church and this interests me a little bit is that there's a predominance of women um, is that true and if so why? Well actually um, I've been thinking a little bit about this because it's not something that struck me, but um, it's probably, in the places where I've worked, it's probably been quite a mixture, actually, of, of men and women. Often in Thailand, um, the, woman, the women are kind of the bosses, the bosses in the home, if you like, and they're often the one that uh, are selling in the market and sort of in, in that kind of level of, of business, business world. So uh, although it can't be classed as a, a true matriarchal society, I think that's quite a, a major part of it. And I think, too, that for, for the men, they're away at the temple and they're involved in the, the playing of the instruments for ceremonies and they have that kind of uh, situation that they're in, that it's maybe harder 
for them to to come out of than it is for the women who, although they they are very involved in the ceremonies with making food and everything, there's maybe not just quite the same same tie into things as as there would be for the men. Although I mean, most there's there are many men in in, in the Thai churches as well and. When we have our Thai camp in this country once a year and a Thai pastor comes over to, to do the teaching, I mean, it's always uh, men that are, are, are involved and so on. So, yeah, I, I, I can't say it's something that struck me particularly. But on the other hand, you could say, well, God is at work and, and, and he's calling women and hopefully that through them, uh, whole families will come because they are often the mainstay of the actual home. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as I sort of looking at the situation, I thought you probably say the same about the Scottish Church. You know, there's a predominance in terms of numbers of of women. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. And some are complex sociological; other ones are perhaps less so. Um, just to conclude now uh, you're just you're a member in a, a local church now a church which i think is probably a higher than average level of global mission interest um can you just in in conclusion as a missionary what would you look for in a, a local congregation in terms of support uh well, I think that a level of interest shown is 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 very helpful. Uh, but that that works from from both ways, as it were. That looks that works from the person who's a missionary keeping church up to date with everything. And I think that now, as uh, we're more into technology and so on, that's much easier. It's much easier to be in touch with people who are actually on the field and get them to maybe coming into our church services and, and playing a part, just keeping things to the forefront. Uh, I think that praying praying for, for missionaries, it's, it's not always the thing that's maybe to uh, the top of the list, as it were. I, I think we can be quite good at the local stuff but we're maybe not quite so uh, outgoing when it comes to to looking further afield and thinking more in a world context. Uh, one thing that having to have our prayer meetings on, on Zoom has done for us is that once a month we've been able to have a mission focus and we've had people come from different parts of the world into that because you're not limited if if you're if you're on Zoom. And that's been a real blessing, I think, to give us a wider perspective of what God is doing doing in the world and of trying to keep not just what's happening in the UK to, to the forefront of people's minds, but what's happening right around the world. And I think that has been a real blessing with people engaging with world mission, probably in a way that they hadn't done before. Uh, Sandra, again, our time is up. Uh, 40 minutes has just flown by. Thank you so much for this. You've raised so many issues and it's certainly got me thinking about lots of things. And folks out there, please pray for Thailand and the Thai people. Um, think about the issues raised. Uh, we live in a world of diaspora. Speak 
to your Buddhist neighbor and just, you know, recognize them as fellow human beings. And if you have an opportunity, share the good news of Jesus and also show Christian kindness to everyone. Sandra, thank you so much. Thank you. 